from the Credit Union National Association. This is the CUNA News Podcast. Credit Union people. Credit Union ideas. Welcome to the CUNA News Podcast. I'm CUNA Deputy Editor Bill Merrick. This episode features conversations from the 2023 CUNA Finance Council Conference in Anaheim, California, where discussions centered around the economy, growing pressure on non-interest income and liquidity, and navigating investments in an inverted yield curve. We also examine the power of active listening and leadership. Let's begin with Christine Messer, CFO and Senior Vice President at Heritage Family Credit Union in Rutland, Vermont, and CUNA Finance Council Vice Chair. She offers insights into a session that addressed current economic challenges. Thanks for making time for us today on the CUNA News Podcast. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. So we got three kind of mildly different versions of of what we can expect for the economy. Where do you fall in those three versions? What do you think, recession-wise, do you think there'll be a recession this year or next year? Well, based on what they're they're telling us, I, I definitely think that we will have a recession, but I'm hoping and thinking it'll be probably more toward next year. I do think a lot of what Dr. Pazego was saying was, that there's still a lot of consumer confidence out there. They're still spending a lot of money. We're definitely seeing that in our credit union with the loan growth hasn't slowed down. Our deposits are definitely rolling off. So they are spending money. So until that slows down in our area, I don't think we'll see that recession come in. What struck a chord with you from this session today? That we're going to have help wanted signs up for quite some time filling those entry-level positions when there's not a lot of entrants into the market that want to make those entry-level wages. That's a a hard, hard thing for all industries to do. Are you finding that in the finance area too? Yeah, for sure. And we also have a shortage of accountants in in the area where I am. I'm from Vermont. So filling either an accountant role is, is really, really hard to find those qualified candidates, especially if there is an accounting role that's just starting out because of who we compete with as far as public accounting firms and things like that. We're a credit union, we're a not-for-profit, so we can't offer the same wages that you necessarily would get at a for-profit, although we definitely beat their benefit packages. (laughs) (laughs) But I, yeah, finding qualified tellers, any entry-level position in the back office side, it's, it's really hard to find good candidates. And so Bill Hempel said that a recession might actually be a good thing for credit unions. Do you agree with that or, or what do you think about that? I think if it stabilizes our rates and our cost of funds and or lowers it, that would be good. And I would love to see loan growth slow down. We are seeing you know, credit cards extend out. Our balances are growing daily. So we know our members are spending their money. And I would hate to see that come to a bubble where they then have delinquency and they have undue financial pressure. So I think having even like a a slow session or or something like that could be good just to put everything back into context. And what is your credit union doing to prepare for the possibility of a recession? You know, we have the most certified financial counselors in the state of Vermont. So we have a very strong certified financial counselor program where anyone from back office teams to the front lines, we meet with members and help them with their financial goals. We stay on top of delinquency. We have a really strong member solutions team but we're also raising rates to make certain loans less tempting. 
and making sure we're looking at the full financial picture. So not just do they have the revenue source and the steady job, but is this the loan that's in the best interest of the member? And what are you doing to address the liquidity crunch? So raising rates, definitely across all lines of lending. We have tried specials, CD specials, to really no avail because we're competing for the same amount of small dollars in the market as everybody else. And really what we don't want to have is rate shoppers as members because they're not going to be sticky members. So we're using a lot of products and services to delve deeper into our membership relationships so that we can make sure that we're saving, even in the high interest rate environments, we can still save our members money. And then hopefully they'll deposit more with us in the future because we have that relationship. Anything else you'd like to add? It's a really challenging time. I've been a CFO for one year. So (laughs) to have this be my first year has been really fun. And, you know, I've definitely learned a lot over this past time. So I guess if I can make it through this, I can make it through anything. While courtesy pay programs are under fire from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, members continue to value the consumer-friendly options credit unions provide. Mira Ness, President and CEO at New York University Federal Credit Union, and Paul Yokish, CFO at Stanford Federal Credit Union in Palo Alto, California, explain how they provide responsible and transparent courtesy pay programs. They also share some creative ways they're boosting non-interest income. Could you summarize your philosophy of courtesy pay and overdraft protection? Our overdraft protection, non-sufficient fee is $25 and courtesy pay is $300 limit. So we were able to, you know, historically, for example, in 2016, our non-sufficient fees and overdraft protection fees were about 43% of total revenue. In 2019, it was 11%, so went down. Because in between these years, we created, we said, everybody who complained about non-sufficient fee, we start refunding them, but there was a caveat. They have to attend a webinar through our partner balance to learn how to manage their money or sit down with our certified financial counselor to, you know, to get educated themselves how to avoid those fees. Then we would refund those fees. In addition to that, we created quick cash loan, which was $500. It's 0% loan, one-time $25 application fees. So we helped our members with, you know, short-term funds not to generate those insufficient fees. Because of that, it went from 43 to 11%. And last year, our fees were about 5% of total revenue. So that's how we're managing our insufficient fees. Our philosophy really is a low fee philosophy, and that's the expectation of our board. That's the expectation of our members. And you can see that because we've reduced or eliminated fees over time. Currently, our overdraft protection, our courtesy pay program is $20. You don't get a fee for anything under $10. You don't get more than four in a day. And in addition to that, we have a relationship module on top of that that kind of waives fees the more you do with the credit union Last year, we eliminated the insufficient funds fee altogether, again, as a value to those members who are already in a vulnerable position because they've been negative. And so adding fees on top of that just felt punitive. And I guess that would be the takeaway from our philosophy is a member paying a fee for a service that they find valuable makes sense to us, especially if that's transparent. If they're paying a fee 
just because they're interacting with us or they made a mistake, that makes less sense to us. It seems like like a lot of members find like overdraft protection to be a valuable fee because it helps mm-hmm. them with they their do. budgeting and everything. Is mm-hmm. that, have you found that's the case in your credit unions? Yeah. And, you know, we basically have no complaints about overdraft protection fee. And I contribute that to our financial education. We constantly educate the member. We give them options to avoid the you know, non-sufficient fees. We give them options, we educate them, but if they're repeating over and over again, it's on them. So they realize they have to pay for the value that their bills are getting paid, but they have to pay for it. Um, but we also, you know, the board actively discussing uh, the you know, possibility of getting rid of, of overdraft and insufficient fees altogether, maybe not in the near future, but we found a way of generating non-interest income other ways, and I just was saying, without feeling guilty about that. So we imp- implemented a very comprehensive program about house ownership. We listened to the members and we created mortgage preparedness loan. It's up to $50,000 unsecured loan. We put members all of their outstanding debt into one loan this low interest rate, which create for them cash flow. And from that cash flow, we encourage them to open club account, and we call the club account down payment account. So they can put over the $100 per month, 200 whatever they can afford, because now they have a cash flow freed up from these loans. On top of that, we provide first down payment assistance loan for the member. It's a secondary position on, on the, below the mortgage, a first mortgage. And we provide lots of financial counseling. And we do mortgages in all 50 states because right now many members work from home and so they move to different states. And we are small credit union, $71 million. We cannot keep all of our mortgages in our portfolio. So we found partner multi-billion dollar credit union. We sell our mortgages to them, but we also do mortgage portfolio servicing. We make up fees from mortgage servicing, from selling of the mortgage, when we, and also we intentionally keep for 30 days, so we earn per diem interest for 30 days. Mm-hmm. The venue that we earn non-income interest by selling currency, hard currency, and doing international wires. So that's being very helpful for us to create non-income interest. And last year, with 40% of our total revenue, revenue was from non-income interest. Again, we didn't feel guilty. We actually felt very proud because we're making positive change on members in members' life. We're helping them to achieve their dream. Yeah, so, so you provided a kind of a valuable service then for yeah, the members. And, yeah, absolutely. And Paul, you mentioned kind of a unique thing that you do to generate non-interest income. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So in addition to kind of the normal non-interest income, wealth management, interchange, servicing fees, etc., we kind of stumbled into providing value through financial partnerships. And a couple of examples is we partnered with the company Wise, which offers almost instant international transfers. We saw our members were already using that. We'd see ACH and wires going over there. And so by using that feature, the member gets a better execution. They get the experience within Stanford Credit Union's online banking. And at the same time, we get a little bit of revenue share there 
at the end. So, and that has come up a couple different times. We partnered with NYDIG last year, which is a company that does buy, sell, and hold of Bitcoin. Again, our members were already moving money to and from Coinbase. And so providing something that's easier for them that also has a benefit to us ends up being a win-win-win. And so I wouldn't say it's the primary reason that we would look for those financial partnerships, but our members tend to look for financial features. And so if we can find them where they correlate and then we also benefit, it may not replace quote unquote fees, but it is a supplement to non-interest income. Liquidity pressures continue to dominate strategic discussions. Billy Guthrie and Joe Kennerson, both managing directors at Darling Consulting Group, discuss deposit strategies in this competitive environment. I'm Joe Kennerson from Darling Consulting Group. And I'm Billy Guthrie from Darling Consulting Group. Great. Well, you had a just a packed session here. You're striking a chord with your topic for sure. So what is driving the liquidity crunch today? Yeah, and I, I think there's multiple things that are playing into the liquidity crunch today. I think one part of it is you have the elevated interest rates, right? So you have this, this idea that there's both competitive rates that are higher, so you have to compete with other deposits. So your depositor can take an investment that they have in deposits and replace that with a better return of a deposit. But then you also have to think more so this cycle around the shot up in rates, now you have alternative investments, right? That also a depositor has the option to take that volume and they can replace their funds not with a, a like deposit, but they can go out there and get a better return somewhere else. In addition to that, I think really the challenge that we see this time around is the idea that we're also going through a period of time where the Fed is going through quantitative tightening. So by design, they're taking some of that excess liquidity that was put into the system outside of the pandemic, and they're taking that away, right? So a lot of us, the competition, the price of the deposits is higher, and then we have a shrinking supply of those deposits that we're competing with. And how long do you think the situation will last, Joe? The timing, we don't know, right? But what, what we think is going to really change the liquidity picture is that it would have to take a pretty significant Fed pivot. Our forecasting model suggests that even if the Fed were to cut rates by 100, maybe 200, it, it, I don't think it's going to you know, change the, the liquidity landscape all that much. I mean, rates down 100 is still a Fed funds rate up over 4%. So the fact that we're still playing catch up from what the Fed has already done means that the Fed would have to make a significant you know, cut in deposit rates for the liquidity picture to change. And what are some ways that credit unions are growing their deposits in this environment? Well, it's not easy. You know, the, the, the money supply is going down. It's probably going to continue to happen. So just maintaining is in a way net growth relative to the industry trend. So how you do it, I think, you know, one of our, our themes that we've been talking about is you got to look from within. You know, I think finding opportunities within your existing, you know, membership base, especially you know, if you're looking to grow checking accounts, increase wallet share, you're going to have more success growing deposits from existing, you know, members that, than you are new members. I think if you're going out to bring in new money from new depositors, you got to think differently. You got to be different. You know, I, I think just going out with a high cost CD special with a, even if it's a decent minimum balance, I don't think that's going to yield the results that you're going to, you're, you're hoping for. So we think about things like, you know, having different options based upon what your goals are, you know, putting together like, Hey, I'll have a very attractive rate. Can you bring in an extra $25,000 of, of new money on this CD or money market product? Right. And then having a backstop product just for more of a retention, you know, standpoint to have that option list. 
You know, you have to have an you know, active checking account. So just kind of you know, putting, putting that in, into play, what we have found in a lot of situations that even if you're asking for like, you know, like I had 25,000 of new money, if it's an attractive product, you might get 50, you might get 75. What ideas and questions did the attendees have today during your session? I think one, one of them was around some of the, the again, what you, you asked on the front end is like this excess, right? What's going to happen with all this abnormal growth? Like how much of that is going to stick around? How much of that is going to stay? And I think that's an important part to this equation is like understanding how much of this is just a normalization, right? That we might have some headwind against our balances just from a normalization. Some of these balances that we can't necessarily throw right at and understanding that that's probably gonna continue into the rest of this year. So we should be prepared, right, to some extent to know that we might not achieve the same growth levels because of some of the, the government policy. And what's one thing that you'd like attendees to take away from your session? I think one of our takeaways actually coincidentally was similar to one of the takeaways from the general session in the morning, which is data, data, data. And the, the good news, you know, as credit unions, we all have a treasure trove of data. Now we may not, believe it because it, you know, the you know, data maybe from the core could be messy or it's hard to wrangle the data into using it into actual intelligence, but it's there, right? We all have this treasure trove. So we're going to lock it. And then, you know, what are the right tools to bring it to life to help support, you know, the you know, decision-making today? Right? I mean, I think we all know that we're in this industry, we're going to go in a direction of more analytics and not less, right? So it's going to happen. It's just a matter of, you know, how, how fast we can get there. Any other advice? Just building off of some of the things that, that Joe just mentioned is this idea, like just be throwing rate, like focusing in all on the rate and a product structure. Like you're, you're never just going to throw a rate there and have success with it. So like the whole idea of, of taking action, making sure that you're, you're going out and you have the appropriate target list of both. You want to look at the, the high risk, right, to be able to get in front of some of that attrition, but just the, the high value, high opportunity, like some of the things that Joe mentioned, whether it's existing members that have taken out some of their money market, their CD balances, that you want to recoup those balances. Or again, people that have more risk, like they don't have tied in like services or checking accounts within your institution. We really need to work those lists in today's environment to have a competitive advantage. And also, you know, enhancing the, the, the whole sales culture around deposits. For 15 years, we really didn't have to, you know, work hard for, for deposits. And, and I think this is we're seeing a paradigm shift in, in this you know, space and the amount of clients that we have seen hire chief deposit officers has, has been you know, pretty interesting. So making sure that our sales folks or people on the front line are aligned with our objectives. Why, are we, why is this product structured the way it is? How do we deal with you know, objections and pushback you know, from, from the membership base? And I think that's, that's not easy, but I think that's something we have to focus on as well. Now, Charlie McQueen, President and CEO at McQueen Financial Advisors, suggests taking a boring approach to investment portfolio management. So in your presentation today, you said that it's a boring time for investments. Why is that? I love that. That's the, the first takeaway. It's perfect. You know, it's a boring time because we need to do the basics. And historically, people have gone into different products, maybe longer term mortgages. Today, we're at the spot where Interest rates may go up a little bit more. I think they're going to start coming down, though, in, in the, you know, the next six to 12 months. And so we need to plan for a little bit lower interest rate environment now versus a higher interest rate environment. So we want to look at non-option-based investments. I don't want to look at mortgages or callable bonds. I want to look at 
fixed term maturities and build a nice boring ladder of securities three, four or five years long. So we have constant maturities here that'll be able to reinvest in whatever market we're in. And we're at an inverted yield curve situation right now. What's, what effect does that have on, on credit unions investment selection? Inverted yield curves are, are wonderful and painful. They're wonderful because it usually tells us what's coming next, meaning the, the market's demanding a higher yield for the short term, but the Fed will stop the inflation problem and yields will come down. So long term, we don't need as much of earnings. We compensate it for that time frame. But what that also means is when I go buy my normal portfolio of one, two, three, four, five year investments right now and build that ladder up as maybe I get some liquidity back, I'm actually buying things at a lower yield than the Fed funds rate, the overnight funds rate. And so I have to sit in a room with my, my coworkers, board, whoever it may be, and say, we're going to walk away from a five or five and a quarter yield to maybe buy a 450. And that's a really difficult conversation because we're locking in for a longer period of time at a lower yield. But the market has taught us every time we get an inverted yield curve, it's the right thing to do. Difficult, but the right thing to do. So what advice would you offer in terms of balance sheet management in this current environment? So I, I call investment portfolio management boring for the next couple of years. Balance sheet management can really be boring, but that's if we do it correctly. And, and what I mean by that is we need to make sure that we balance out all of our, our activities in our investment portfolio and in our loan portfolio that we're managing our balance sheets so we're not all in mortgages and investments and, and, and also loans, that we've balanced out the type of loans, the type of investments we have, and we're actually using the investment portfolio to complement the rest of the balance sheet and figure out what we need to do with the investment portfolio to be successful. And then the next level of balance sheet manager is actually modifying our, our loan portfolio if we can't do enough of, I'll say it, fixing or, or modifying with the investment portfolio. And, and you mentioned some of the, the investment products that you like and some that you don't like. Can you go over those? Yeah, love, love to. So nothing against mortgages, but we have this word we use all the time, negative convexity. And what negative convexity means is that the wrong thing happens. And so if, if you own mortgages in this environment, interest rates go up, the value of, of those, those, and that investment goes down, but the, the life of it extends and gets longer. And so when rates rise, I want my money back so I can reinvest at a higher level. So negative convexity does the wrong thing. Callable securities also have negative convexity. So mortgages and callable securities. Callable securities are going to go to the maturity date unless interest rates come down, then they get called away and I lose that higher yielding investment. So when we get to these higher yield spots, I want to make sure that I actually am locking in my yields. And so I like non-callable securities right now. So primarily we'll look at agency bonds, treasury bonds, which are really boring, but non-callable agency bonds, treasury bonds. And we'll also look at municipal bonds. We, we municipalities had a lot of income enhancements with some of the changes in the home sales. So we're a big fan of that also. We are also not a big fan of corporate bonds right now, just because of the unknown risk. If we do enter a recession, what type of recession? We want to limit that type of risk today. Any other takeaways you'd like people to, to take from your session today? So other things to take away from the presentation, to me, a lot of times we're not all in the same page. We don't have the marketing team on the same page. We, we don't have the lending team on the same page. And so ELCO, the overall management of the balance sheet, asset liability management committee, we need to make sure we're looking at all the components. One is going to be your interest rate risk reporting, your ALM report. Another one's going to be concentration risk reporting, making sure that balance sheet's diversified, making good investment decisions but also making sure your products are correct and you're marketing those products correctly 
and that we're getting the desired outcome. I don't like it when loan officers are paid on volume or head of lending is paid on volume. I don't like it when the marketing team goes off and markets something we don't want. So really getting everyone together and having a good conversation. The one last thing I'll leave you on, my co-presenter, Jim Craven, I've worked with Jim for 16 years, and we both have a different opinion. He thinks the Fed's going to have to raise rates a little bit more. I think they're going to start cutting rates. Who knows who's right? I think the more importantly, though, is it's good to have dissenting opinions and to talk about those dissenting opinions. So if rates would come up a little bit more, you're still okay. And if rates would start to go down, you're still okay. And so it's really managing for the uncertainty of outcomes, but having a range of potential outcomes and being prepared for it. We conclude by looking at the power of active listening and leadership with Amanda Bardonner, Vice President of Strategic Accounts at LendKey. Why is listening so hard, do you think? Why do people struggle with, with that? Yeah, I think we're just so distracted, right? There are so many ways that we receive communication. Our calendars are constantly blocked. And so we just are always thinking of something else. I think the other piece is that, and shared in the presentation, that science shows us that we can actively hear about 150 words where our brain is processing 1,000 to 3,000 words at that same amount of time. Uh, and so we just are always going. We can't turn our brain off. But how do we stop and pause and remove those distractions and focus on listening? So what what is active listening and, and why is that so important? So active listening is really going beyond just hearing words that are coming out of your mouth, right? We're having a conversation now. I hear that that's happening, but it's moving to understanding and it's trying to understand for intent or the purpose or the why and the feeling behind what somebody is saying. And so it's, again, removing those distractions, focusing on the person, using eye contact, using your, making sure that your body is positioned towards them, right? All shoulder those, should yeah, be shoulder, towards you. shoulder towards you, right? All of those things that just open you up to be prepared to really hear what somebody is saying and to understand the intent and value of what they're saying. And how do you, how does that translate into like a virtual work environment? Yeah, there's definitely complexity there, right? Especially if you think about people being in person and virtual, how do we work in that hybrid world? But I think the intent is there regardless of whether or not you're in-person or virtual. I think it's a little bit more challenging in a virtual world. I've worked remote for five years, and so I still have to remind myself, hey, stop the notifications, right? If I'm going into a check-in or I have a presentation or in my line of work, a conversation with one of our credit union partners, I have to pause and make sure I'm intentional about turning off a Slack notification or an Outlook notification, right? Because I'm not just getting that in one spot, I'm getting it across devices. And how is that changing the course of my conversation and my listening? So, you know, I think especially when you're remote, just being very intentional and focused and even looking at the camera, right? Making sure your camera is on. I think we've heard from the session today is, is even just a good reminder for people. You mentioned some of the, the key differences in communication styles among the generations. Mm -hmm. Could you go over those? Yeah, definitely. So baby boomers are immediate. I'm going to get an answer in the most efficient way possible. So I'm going to pick up the phone and likely have a conversation with you. Or if we're in office, it's going to be face-to-face. -face, and that's how I prefer. Where a millennial or a Gen Z is looking for really instant responses. So I might want you to send me an email or text me or an instant message just because I want a quick yes or no. I don't want to have a full conversation about it. And so understanding you know, how somebody wants to be communicated with and what channels really helps us all to be more efficient. 
Anything else you'd like to add? I think the biggest thing that I think is so important here is that generational changes in the workplace are not new. Like this is something that we've continued to see generation after generation. But it's important that we think about how upcoming generations are going to shape and change our organization and how we can build a culture around that that supports the individuals and where they're at and what their needs are. And then also how we create that inclusive culture, not just in the branch, but all the way up through our board. Thanks for listening to the CUNA News Podcast. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher Radio. 